2: With just two weeks left to go before Election Day, President Trump has been making his way to battleground states with rallies scheduled in Arizona and Pennsylvania. Former Vice President Joe Biden has no public campaign events scheduled this week as he enters into the preparation phase for Thursday's final presidential debate. Our socially distant panel is anxiously awaiting to discuss this, but first... We'll be looking at some of those key battleground states in the upcoming 2020 election. Fox News Radio national correspondent Jared Halpern gives us an update on these closely contested states.
3: Democrats are bullish in the Sun Belt. The southern portion of the country stretching from coast to coast could be a key to realigning conventional political allegiances four states are believed to be in play next month that all went for President Trump four years ago and in some cases Republican nominees for decades longer. Since 1952, the GOP's presidential nominee has won in Arizona every election except for 1996. But four years ago, President Trump's margin of victory was the smallest since then, and this week he has returned to the state for a couple of rallies to shore up support. Democrats have not won in Georgia since 1992, the last six presidential elections elections. Republicans are also defending two Senate seats in the state. And like Arizona, Georgia has played host to a Make America Great Again rally this month. Then Senator Barack Obama won the state of North Carolina in 2008. But Democrats haven't won there since. And before that, had not had success in the state since 1976. But Democrats have had recent victories in statewide races, winning the governor's race in 2016. Both campaigns have made frequent stops to North Carolina, as well as flooding TV and radio with ads. Perhaps no Sunbelt state provides as clear a bellwether as President Trump's adopted home, Florida. Since 1972, Florida has voted for the winning campaign every single time, with the exception of 1992. President Trump won there in 2016. President Obama won there 12 just like his predecessor, President George W. Bush. Public polling has shown slim advantages there for President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, with even those slight gaps closing in recent weeks. In Washington, Jared Halpern, Fox News.
2: Jared, thanks. We'll start there with our panel, USA Today Washington Bureau Chief and moderator of the Vice Presidential Debate, Susan Page. Co founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Tom Bevan, and Fox News politics editor Chris Steyerwald. All right, Susan, uh, I'm sure you're happy that that is all over with, the debate. Uh, as we get ready for another debate, another moderator in the hot seat, uh, set the table for us on where you think this election is. Obviously, the polls still suggest that Biden is leading, but there are a lot of people looking at enthusiasm at these rallies and other elements that uh, say some of these states could be tight.
0: Well, you know, 2016 made uh, all of us a little more cautious about being confident about what was going to happen in an election, especially one still two weeks away. But this is clearly an uphill battle for President Trump at this point. And the debate Thursday night is his last chance for a long ball to have such a powerful debate or one that is sufficiently catastrophic for Joe Biden that it changed the trajectory of a contest that is now headed the Democrats' way.
1: Chris, you buy that, looking at the numbers? Uh, I do. I mean, look, uh, I think Susan, who, by the way, did an exceptionally good job uh, as a moderator. Uh, I think she's quite right that it's more about, can Trump incinerate Biden or have Biden explode himself? And when you saw Biden's response to the reporter about this stuff, about his son's laptop, long story short, is he needs Biden to blow a gasket. And Biden knows that's what he's going to be trying to do. But that's no guarantee that he can prevent it from happening.
2: Tom, you know, we were cautious in 2016 about, you know, crowds and crowd sizes and what that meant and turnout. You know, in a COVID-19 environment, it's also a little bit more complex. uh, But clearly people are turning out to these Trump rallies.
4: Yeah, I mean the enthusiasm thing is real. I mean, Donald Trump supporters are are very passionate. Now that doesn't that doesn't mean that there are enough Trump supporters uh, you know, to, to win the election, but but certainly we're seeing two completely different campaigns in terms of how they're being conducted and and in terms of the reaction from from the crowds. We are going to see, I think, even despite the pandemic, record turnout. And we're already seeing that number in in the early votes. Um, so, and and I think the conventional wisdom is that that benefits Joe Biden, but I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. Um, I do think this race, you know, we still have two weeks left. You look at some of these numbers. I'm, I'm just looking at our average in Florida, for example, uh, and Pennsylvania, the race is closing. Um, that would be good news for Trump if those trends continue. The problem is you know, it's not closing in other places that he needs it to close. And So, last like, where days. is
2: it, Tom, in Michigan? He says, and I checked it with the Secretary of State's office, that he's ahead in early voting. He's barely ahead in Michigan in early voting. And, you know, in a place like Michigan, uh, with a competitive Senate race with John James and incumbent Gary Peters, that's interesting. Data point?
4: Yeah, I mean, Michigan's a, a state... You know, we've got, let's see, three, six polls that have been taken over the last two weeks or so. Um, and all of them show Joe Biden leading by anywhere from six to 11 points, except for the Trafalgar group poll. And that's Robert Kahaley And he's the guy who, who basically got it right in 2016 in Michigan and in Pennsylvania, uh, among a couple other states. And he's, you know, I just interviewed him the other day. You know, he's seeing exactly what he saw in 2016, um, and nobody else is seeing it now. Whether you know he's right and everybody else is wrong, I suppose that's possible, but...
2: I mean, explain for folks out there, if you, the poll is a poll based on the prism you look through about turnout and who you think is going to vote. And you're saying that Trafalgar last time kind of nailed who came out to vote, and they're making a guess this time. And they're the poll that has him up one in Michigan.
4: Correct. And they also, I, I believe uh, that they had John James up uh, a point in that race as well. And that's one of the only races, by the way, where the Senate candidate is actually helping Trump. Um, in most of the other races, it's it's the opposite. But, yeah, he's he's seeing, this, again, the same sort of trends that he saw in, in 2016 um, now some of these other pollsters have adjusted for that. They're not picking this up, but he is, uh, they do, Trafalgar does something a little bit different. He's talking to voters that are, haven't, haven't turned out in, uh, a number of elections. And so, you know, look, if he's right, he's going to be a, a superstar. If he's wrong, he's going to be, you know, a, a goat and his, his reputation is going to, going to suffer, but he's just one data point. I mean, there are, there are a few data points out there that, there are a lot of ways this race is, is not like 2016, but there are some echoes. And, uh, you know, I think we should try and take all those into account and make judgments about them as we look forward to, to you know, the last couple of weeks of this race.
2: I mean, primarily the, the biggest thing that's different, Susan, is that it's an incumbent and he has a record to run on as opposed to an outside businessman who America said, let's take a chance and see what happens.
0: You know, that's exactly right, Brett, and it's especially important for a candidate who won four years ago full of grievance about how things were going and about how the Obama administration had pursued everything from relations with China to international alliances to climate change. Uh, it's, It's hard to be the candidate of grievance when you've been in charge for four years, and one of the things that has surprised me is not President Trump's weakness at this moment in the presidential race because he is clearly trailing nationally and in states that he in some of the states that he won last time around. What surprises me is that he continues to have some significant strength at a time more than two hundred thousand Americans have died of of COVID nineteen and the economy has gone into the tank. Uh, you know, serious jobs problems in the aftermath of the effect of the pandemic. So it's remarkable to me that he continues to be in a situation where maybe it's possible for him to thread a needle and win the electoral college again.
2: Uh, Chris, how does he do that? Where, where are the states that you're focused on? I think, you know, we talked earlier on our editorial call about North Carolina being kind of central to every path.
1: I think, you know, always for a Republican, you start out with Florida. He can't win without Florida. So that's that's for openers. Um, and then for Trump, I think it's Wisconsin and North Carolina. I think he's got to have those two. If Tom's uh, uh, interview subject is, uh, is wrong and everybody else is right, and Trump really is back in Michigan and back in Pennsylvania, he needs Wisconsin. He needs North Carolina to still maintain uh, a shot at this. Uh, the Trump campaign's hope was that they were going to bring New Hampshire, they were going to bring Nevada, they were going to bring Minnesota, they were going to bring Colorado, they were going to bring these other states into play. They were going to expand the map on their side so that they wouldn't have to draw to an inside straight again. But they're, draw, they're going to have to draw to an inside straight again. And what they would need would be a polling error at a higher margin than it was in 2016, but they would need it basically in all of the states. They would need it in all of the states. So it could happen. It's certainly, it's a, it's, it's a non-zero probability, but the, but the way is narrow for sure.
2: Susan, what states are you looking
1: at?
0: You know, I think you want to look at, I think I look first at Florida. Um, For one thing, we might have, we might have results there in in reasonable time. And as, as Chris just said, it's a state that it's hard to imagine president Trump wins reelection without, without caring. It's, it seems like we're always looking at the same states, aren't we? I mean, what, what would you add this time that we don't always look at? Uh,
2: Arizona. Uh, Arizona.
0: <laughs> Arizona. Okay, Arizona, that'd be one. Uh, you know, the fact that we're watching Georgia, that's, that's kind of interesting, not a good sign for the president. But, you know, Florida, 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 that's what we always come back to.
2: Yeah, it really is. Uh, Tom, where is your focus? Like, if yeah, I'm mean- election night <laughs> early, um, usually we – you know, Georgia, North Carolina, Florida, we should get a good picture early in the night.
4: Yeah, I think we'll have a, if you watch Florida, uh, you'll get a good sense. I mean, I, I think about the map this way. So Trump won with 306 electoral votes. So he's got 36 to, to play with. He can lose 36 electoral votes and still win two seventy-two sixty-eight. Florida's 29 of those. So if he loses that, he can literally only lose one other state, and that would be Iowa. Um, And still win, but if he loses Florida, he can't lose. Basically, can't lose another state. Um, So that's that goes to speaks to what Chris was talking about the the central importance of Florida. And then you think North Carolina is next in line. He's got to have North Carolina, I think. Um, And then that leaves you with sort of the the three the trio of upper Midwest states and Arizona. And and he can depending on how you play with those, he can lose two of those four. If he wins Arizona, then he only has to win one of the three in the uh, upper Midwest. Now, if it's Wisconsin, we're at a 269, or then, then we're talking about, you know, Nebraska two and Maine two. Um, so for me, I think his best shot is probably, uh, according to where the polls are and the trends are right now, is Pennsylvania. And if he can win Pennsylvania, um, he could lose Michigan, he could lose Wisconsin and still win reelection. So I agree the path is narrow, but, but that's kind of how I'm looking at this race.
2: We'll hear what they have to say after this.
1: Kudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Kudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.
2: So for the debate, uh, do you sense, Susan, that there's going to be a change in the president's demeanor, the way that he operates, obviously the fallout from the first one, did not benefit him.
0: But I feel like this is a conversation we've had before in many different circumstances where yeah. <laughs> the president's aides are saying, you know, he really has got to moderate his behavior. You know, he really has to stop tweeting such provocative stuff. You know, he really needs to not um, uh, say some of the things he says in public. Uh, and I think, that's, I think he's getting that advice this time, that he needs to take a, a more moderate stance rhetorically. Uh, and, in terms of his behavior on this debate than he did in the first one, but one thing we 've learned, I think, for the past four years is that Donald Trump is Donald Trump. he is who he is. It is very hard to get him not to be who he is, so I am not holding my breath for some new and revised version of Donald Trump in this debate
1: chris yeah, I mean it, again, he Trump failed in two ways in the first debate he failed to present himself as an attractive leader and a person deserving of a second term. But the bigger failure was on his gambit to blow up Joe Biden. Because remember, Joe Biden's least attractive setting is angry Joe Biden. And he does get his Irish up. He does get upset. And what Trump was clearly trying to do was trigger Biden by attacking his son and talking about his son's drug problems and all that stuff. There has been a single minded if, if, except for the president's recent uh, uh, sidetrack on Anthony Fauci, Everything from the Trump campaign is about Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden. And they are definitely pushing into this. So I would just expect Trump to come out guns blazing and say that Joe Biden is the most corrupt person who has ever drawn breath and that his son is practically a communist agent and just push Biden on that to see if he can get Biden to snap.
2: And Tom, is is there any sense that that story is making a ripple? I mean, first of all, outside of a certain group of news organizations, there's some um, that haven't even touched it, let alone dug into the meat of it.
4: Yeah, it's it's tough to tell the way that the story has. I mean, there's the, there's the story itself, and then there's the whole censorship piece of it with Twitter and Facebook that has also, you know, sort of caused its own offshoot. But I'm not sure how the public is, is viewing that. I mean, obviously, Democrats, again, it's, it's your filter. If you're a Democrat, you think it's garbage and and desperation. If you're a Republican, you think it's confirmation of what what you've known all along. And then the question is, well, how do independents view it? Um, or any person who's actually persuadable? Hard to say. Uh, assuming they even saw it or know about it, I agree with Chris. I think he, I think Trump is absolutely going to bring it up at the debate and and try and push Biden on it. Um, and to, to see, you know, how how he responds. So people will know about it then if they don't, uh, to that point. But hard to say if it's going to really move anybody, move the needle in the final two weeks.
2: You had the uh, director of national intelligence on television today saying it is not, from what they can tell, any part of a Russia disinformation campaign. There's no intelligence to suggest that, is what John Radcliffe said on TV today. You know, it's... Susan, the tough part is going into the details and trying to get off and to authenticate each one of these emails. We saw in just today a write-up of Russia's actions before the French election where there were good emails and bad emails mixed in together, and and they hacked and leaked them. That came out today at the DOJ. So there is a sensitivity to it, but it's not that it's not a story.
0: Well, the, the problem with getting the story picked up beyond the New York Post has been the difficulty of confirming that it's a legitimate story and that there's uh, enough evidence to, to write a story that's as provocative as that story is. And very few news organizations have concluded that it passes that bar. Um, you know, the New York Times even wrote this morning that the reporter who wrote the story for the new york post refused to put his byline on it and we all we all have a memory of what happened in in 2016 we know that there is a i'm not saying this is russian disinformation i have no idea if it is if it is or not but we know that those who pursue disinformation or spread disinformation often mix real Material with fake material because that gives credibility to the fake material, and I think that's made many of us pretty gun shy in giving kind of the maximum publicity to an accusation like this.
1: Chris, you know, the I think one of the other problems that the Trump campaign has here is it there's a material and important question which these uh, which what the post reported raises, which is did Joe Biden actually meet with? these, you know, scrofulous individuals with whom his son, whom his son was bilking uh, cash from uh, overseas. Was Joe Biden actually involved? And the Biden campaign says, well, they say an interesting thing. They say, we checked his records and there's no record of a meeting. But Biden has not said, I unequivocally can tell you I never met this person. So maybe they're, they're trying to hold for some gray area. But short of implicating Joe Biden, telling the world that Hunter Biden is a troubled person with a super shady uh, economic plan for himself isn't new, and it, isn't, it doesn't move voters, right? Trying to bring in people's kids and trying to bring in other stuff is really tough to make the leap. So unless, the, unless Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon can get to something that's like, and Biden did it, and it can be confirmed and he's involved, I think it's hard to make it stick.
2: Well, this is this email about China and hold 10 for the big guy, you know, um, and that's one of the emails that has people on the chain who say they have received the email back in May of 2017, suggesting that it was at least authentic at the beginning. Um, And so if you go to the big guy is Joe Biden, that's what gets you to that connection. But... The other thing is, after all these years of stories about Russia and how the president may be compromised, isn't there the potential that a family member could be a potential compromise for either China or Russia when it comes to Hunter Biden?
1: I mean, all all things are possible. But I think this is, so far at least, not enough. In an election that is being litigated on the question of coronavirus and the economy, I don't think that they are there. And I don't think they're close. And if, it's, if there's more to come and they have other bombshells that they're going to try to drop before the end, I fully expect, by the way, that both of these candidates will be rocked by further October surprises before it's done. One of the lessons of 2016 was hold until the end. When they dropped the excess Hollywood tape on Trump, if they would have just waited a couple of weeks, it probably would have done the trick. So I think we can expect a lot of gross stuff to be thrown out there in the closing two weeks when it's sort of too late to check. Yeah, Tom. Uh, last word.
2: I,
4: I'm still googling "scrofulous." Can you spell that for me, Chris? I wasn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the. That's that. Is, that is one of the few words that operates in both the Oxford sense and the hillbilly sense. We've got it on both sides.
2: <laughs>
4: no, well, listen. I, I will say a, a couple of things. I mean, the Biden campaign their approach to this is just to ignore it. I'm not sure that's tenable. I mean, it would be easy for them to just come out and say, look, this never happened. These emails never sent. I'm not the big guy. Okay. So stop it. But they haven't done that. And I think that's something that, you know, why wouldn't they do that if these things weren't, uh, you know, true, they could dismiss it. Number one, number two, waiting longer. And I agree with Chris, I think more stuff's going to come out uh, about this story. Perhaps others, um, I think the problem for the Trump campaign is because there's so much early voting this time, like the longer, every hour that ticks by makes it, gets them diminishing returns on, on any sort of, you know, October surprise, bombshell, et cetera. I, I do think, and, and to the point, you know, about the media coverage, I mean, that is one of the things that I think Trump supporters are, you know, really sticks in their craw is the sudden, the media's sudden uh, scrupulousness Not quite as good of a word, Chris, as yours But yeah. in terms of vetting This information after they ran wild With, you know, the P tape and all this other stuff uh, it, Suddenly Now it has to be, all these things have to be You can't even They can't even be seen by the public So I think that's, that's another issue But um, Look, it's, it's I think as far as a, an election issue <sighs> There are, you know, the New York Times had a a story today about the number of of folks who voted for Trump in 2016 who are now switching to Biden uh, or who are on the fence, who are warming to Biden. To the extent that these folks who voted for Trump and maybe don't like him as a person, but like his policies um, could be drawn back to Trump by by if something does, you know, more damaging comes out uh, about Biden. In in a close race, in some of these states, it could it could make it could have an effect. We'll have to wait and see.
2: We will indeed, and in this debate uh, arguably going to be watched with. You would guess more than 70 million people, if you look at the numbers traditionally, uh, is the moment that is left before Election Day. All right, panel, thank you very much. Here's a bit of campaign trivia. Amid the 2012 presidential race with just a week before Election Day, October 22nd, 2012 Hurricane Sandy formed in the Caribbean Sea, made landfall in the United States just days later. The hurricane effectively sidelined both candidates as much of the East Coast weathered this dangerous storm by Election Day. Many areas hardest hit by the storm were in no shape to host voters at polling stations, prompting New York and New Jersey to allow citizens displaced by Hurricane Sandy to vote in the presidential election by email or by fax. (laughs) And, of course, there was the hug by Governor Chris Christie on the tarmac of President Barack Obama. Um, and the Romney people didn't like to see that. Well, that's a little campaign trivia for you. That does it for this week for this podcast. Get a podcast wherever you download podcasts. We want to hear from you. Leave a rating and review. For Chris and Susan and Tom, I'm Brett Baer. And we'll see you next time.